Good evening. It's my job to introduce the topic and the speaker. And I'll introduce the topic uh, by sort of drilling down with increasing specificity to it. So most generally, the topic for tonight is something that each of you is very familiar with. If you have your eyes open, if you're paying attention, if you're alive at all in the world, you're familiar or you know about uh, suffering and evil. More specifically, though, the topic concerns whether and how suffering poses a challenge, an intellectual challenge for religious belief. But more specifically, it's whether and how it poses a challenge for belief in not just any kind of religion, but monotheism and Christian monotheism in particular. And so we can say even more specifically that under a monotheistic conception of God, God is said to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Given those properties of God, we arrive at what's called, by philosophers, the so-called problem of evil. So if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then he could prevent evil, and if he's all-good, he would prevent evil. So why is there evil in the world? Right? What good is evil for, if anything? That's the topic, and um, I'll make just three quick comments about it. One is it's the arguably the oldest philosophical problem that there is. It's as old as the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. It's, the second comment is it's not a problem that sort of arrives, sort of, um, that it doesn't catch any theist by surprise. That is, it's a problem that's been articulated for thousands of years from within uh, theistic traditions, and in particular the Christian tradition. So it's an internal problem in that respect, and Christians and other thinkers have been wrestling with it and thinking about it and writing about it for, for a very long time. Uh, the third comment is that despite the fact that it's so old, uh, it never goes away, and every year there are books published on this problem by leading philosophers and theologians. And these books aren't just saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, it's remarkable how much there is to be learned about this problem uh, continually. So it's a, it's a rich source for insights and inspiration. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a new problem. It's not an old problem. Or it is an old problem, sorry. Uh, and it continues to be an important topic for discussion. Um, and it never really gets old. Tonight, we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Gloria Frost. Uh, and she's going to be talking about this problem and in particular what Thomas Aquinas had to say about it. Uh, Dr. Frost, she's an associate professor from the University of St. Thomas, and she specializes in medieval philosophy, and in particular the work of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, she did her bachelor's from the Catholic University of America, and her master's and PhD from the University of Notre Dame. In fact, we overlapped at Notre Dame uh, by about five years, so that's how I got to know her originally. Um, she uh, does a lot of publishing in medieval philosophy, and uh, so we look forward to hearing her thoughts tonight on the problem of evil. So let's welcome Dr. Frost. So thank you all for coming tonight, and thank you to the many organizers who collaborated to make this event possible. It's really wonderful to have so many people together tonight to think hard and to talk together about these really important questions for our lives. So our world is full of pain and suffering. Nearly every day we read about horrific acts of violence and devastating natural disasters. In addition to events such as these that we read about in the news, there are also the hidden personal sufferings that don't make the headlines. Countless people among our family and friends, as well as strangers unknown to us, quietly suffer afflictions such as depression, drug addiction, failed relationships, and rejections. The obvious fact that our world includes much suffering is the starting point for one of the oldest and most compelling arguments against the existence of God. Why might, might you ask, do so many people think that the existence of God is incompatible with evil? Well, if God is supposed to be all-knowing, as the traditional religions say, then God would be aware of all the evil, evils happening in the world. For example, God would know about the terrorist plot before the attack happened. Furthermore, if God is all-powerful, God would be able to stop all evil. An omnipotent being like God could wipe out not only terrorists, 
but also ailments like childhood cancer. And finally, if God is supposed to be all good, as religious people say, God would want to stop all the evils in our world. We're not as good as God is supposed to be, but all of us here, I suppose, would stop and wipe out all the evils if we could. So why doesn't God do that? If God is the sort of being who would know about all evil, be able to stop all evil, and want to stop all evil, then it follows that if there were a God, it seems that all evil would have been eliminated by now. But clearly there is still evil in our world, so therefore it seems to many people that there cannot be an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God. Variations of this argument have been put forth by philosophers and theologians for centuries in attempt to undermine belief in God. In tonight's talk, I want to look to the great philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas for wisdom on the question of why there's evil in our world, given that the world as a whole is a creation of a good God. So if you look on your handout, I've given you a picture of Thomas Aquinas. So um, he lived from 1225 to 1275, and he's regarded, especially by Catholics, but also by Christians in general, as one of the greatest minds to have thought seriously about really hard questions of the intellectual life and also combining um, his intellectual learning with faith. So we're going to look to him tonight to see what kind of wisdom and insight he can give us into this very important problem. So first, what is evil and where does it come from? To understand Aquinas' thinking about why there's evil, we must first consider his views about what evil is and where it comes from. Aquinas' conception of what evil is, or rather what it's not, is strikingly different from how we in the modern world tend to think of evil. We tend to identify evil with some sort of positive force that inclines humans towards acts of malice or inclines natural entities such as tornadoes toward destruction of human life and property. By contrast, the majority of ancient and medieval thinkers denied that evil was something positive. In their view, the term evil doesn't pick out some force or positive characteristic which all evil things have in common. Rather, what it means to say that something is evil or bad is that it's missing or lacking some good that it ought to have. A common example Aquinas gives is blindness to illustrate this point. Blindness is not some positive thing that gets added to a person. Rather, it's a lack of sight. Let us consider another example. Consider bad cars. Think of all the ways in which a car can be bad. Bad can describe a car with failing brakes that skids instead of stops, or a car with a failing carburetor that delays when it's supposed to accelerate. A bad car can be one with body, body deteriorated from rust. That's how a lot of the cars are in Minnesota right now, where I'm from, from all the salt and snow. But you all probably don't know about that here in Texas. The term bad in these examples, it doesn't pick out a list of positive features that all bad cars share in common. Rather, all those cars have something different that's wrong with them. The reason we call them all bad is because all of them are missing or lacking some sort of order or functioning that a car ought to have. Cars are, of course, real, actual things, and cars are good. The badness of a car, however, is an absence or a lacking rather than a positive thing that's added to all cars that are bad. Each one of them lacks or is missing something a car ought to have. I want to share with you a quote I recently read from a young man named Morgan Bolt, who recently passed away at the age of 27 after a long battle with cancer. Before his death, he was working on a book called Cancer is Not Evil. The way in which he speaks about cancer fits well with Aquinas' view that evil is not a positive reality. Bolt writes the following in an essay of his called Living on the Edge, quote, but cancer, in my opinion, is no more evil than weather or mountains or trees or any other part of this world that can and does kill people. As far as I am aware, nobody claims that clouds, snowy peaks, or trees are inherently evil. People may hate cancer, but that alone doesn't make it evil. Cancer may bring only suffering and death, yes, but cell division, that keeps us alive. It allows us to grow and heal. And what is cancer if not a hurricane of cell division? And cell division is just like any other part of this incredible and dynamic world. 
end quote. Bolt, from his personal experience, knew the immense pain and suffering of living with cancer. Yet, like Aquinas, he sees even cancer as something which consists of an underlying reality that is inherently good, namely cell division. Without cell division, nothing in the universe could live or adapt. But sometimes cell division is lacking in a proper order or regulation. With this lack or absence, this lack of order or lack of regulation, is why we call it cancer. The cell division of itself is good, and what is bad about it in the case of cancer is what it's missing, namely the order or regulation that cell division ought to have. You may now be wondering why this point about evil being a lack of goodness matters for thinking about how God relates to the evil or badness in the world. Aquinas and his medieval counterparts thought that getting the point straight that evil is a lacking rather than something positive was of utmost importance for distancing God from causal responsibility for evil. If evil were itself a positive reality, then it seems that it must have been brought into existence by God, since God is the creator of everything that exists. The ancient Manichees tried to reject this conclusion by positing that, in addition to the good God, there was a supreme evil being who brought evil into existence. But if evil is not something positive, then it doesn't need any cause to bring it into existence. Everything real is made by God, and everything real is good. Evil is a lack of good which ought to be there. Although evil is a lack of good, there's always a cause that explains why it is that a good is removed from a particular creature at a particular time. According to Aquinas, evils that are suffered by one creature are caused by another creature seeking its own perfection. The preservation of the lion's life, for example, might involve the destruction of the lamb. Is the death of the lamb good for the lamb? Of course not. But its destruction is in fact good for the lion and for the universe as a whole. Aquinas believes that a universe with a variety of different types of creatures is a better representation of God's goodness than a universe with just one or a few different kinds of creatures. Each different type of creature reveals to us something unique about God's nature and goodness. But in order to have a universe with many different types of creatures, there has to be some suffering because one creature's flourishing often requires <coughs> another's destruction. So far I've been talking about evils that happen through natural causes, such as diseases that afflict our body <coughs> or the suffering in the animal food chain. Excuse me, I'm getting over a sickness myself right now, so kind of an appropriate talk to be giving about sickness. <coughs> so bear with me if I have to stop a little more to get a drink. So what about the sinful choices that humans make? Aquinas believes that the evil or badness of human actions could also be understood as a lack of good. Aquinas thinks that whenever we act, we are seeking a good. But we can seek goods in a, the wrong way when we turn away from a higher good for a lower one. For example, say there's some person, Jones, who really wants to eat a candy bar, and he goes into a convenience store and steals it so he can taste the pleasure of that candy bar. Desiring pleasure from food and enjoying it, that's a good thing. But it would have been an even better thing if Jones would have refrained from that pleasure for the sake of the higher good of following the moral law in that case. His action of seeking pleasure from food is in itself something good, but it's missing or lacking in ordering to the moral law. Acts of seeking pleasure are not themselves evil, but they become bad actions, morally speaking, when they are not subordinated to higher goods. Aquinas believed that God gave human beings the gift of free will. What it means to have a will is that we have the power to choose how we seek goods. <coughs> it's up to us to use our minds to think about how to pursue goods in the right way so that we don't end up abandoning higher goods for the sake of lower ones. When we misuse that freedom, we can end up causing ourselves and other creatures to be deprived of goodness which we ought to have. So to summarize what we've heard so far, 
According to Aquinas, evil is a lack of good. In Aquinas' view, God does not directly cause evil. God causes several kinds of good creatures, and he gives them the power to perform actions that promote their own good. It is these good creatures which God creates that cause each other to suffer losses of goodness. One creature's survival can entail the destruction of another creature. Furthermore, when human beings seek good in a disordered way through the misuse of freedom, they also cause themselves and other creatures to lose goods which they ought to have. Now we'll turn to the question of how this all fits with God's loving care for each individual human being. So let's turn now to part two, which is Aquinas' views on God's permission of evil and his love for human beings. So even if evil is a lack or an absence and not something real or cre created or caused by God, you might still be wondering, why doesn't God stop creatures from causing suffering to one another? Why doesn't God fix things and get them the right way when one creature hurts another? It's clear that in the case of the lion eating the lamb, it would not make sense maybe for God to stop the lion or else the, 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 lamb couldn't, the lion couldn't live if God stopped it from eating the lamb. Some evil in nature is gonna be just a necessary condition for species to survive. And we can un maybe understand why God wouldn't interfere if he wants nature to work a certain way. But what about our human suffering? Our suffering and death isn't necessary for another species to live. So why doesn't God prevent natural disasters and diseases from hurting us? Why doesn't he stop us from hurting each other? In Aquinas' view, it wasn't God's initial will that humans should suffer bodily death and corruption. According to Christian theology, God created the first humans in a state called original justice. God gave to the first humans special gifts that human beings do not naturally have. Through a special gift, the first humans' intellects had perfect command over their behavior and they possessed every moral virtue. Their souls were so powerful in this state that they were able to prevent their bodies um, from suffering corruption and death. When the first human beings sinned, they rejected God's rule, and with that, they also rejected the special gifts they had been given by God. With the rejection of these supernatural gifts, human beings were no longer preserved from death and physical suffering. It's, it is natural that material bodies eventually break down and corrupt. It was only through a special strengthening of our soul through God's power that we were spared this natural breaking down of our bodies. In response to original sin, God wills human beings to have the consequences that follow from their choice to reject God's gifts. This, of course, is not God's ultimate will. God also willed, as Christians believe, to send Christ into the world with the plan of reconciling human beings to himself. The important point to take away is that the evil suffered by human beings is not something that God indirectly willed for the sake of the good of the universe as a whole, as in the case with the evil suffered by the lamb when the lion eats it. Our physical death and suffering is a consequence that God allowed to follow from our first parents' rejection of the gifts God originally gave our race. But as we all know, bodily death and natural uh, corruption aren't the only sorts of evils we suffer in this world. As we see in the news every day, humans suffer from senseless acts of violence, horrible car accidents, abuse, and neglect. It seems that God could allow our bodies to break down and die as a consequence of original sin, while ordering the universe in such a way that no children would starve to death or no acts of terror would be committed. So why doesn't God providentially order the universe to save us from all of this additional evil we experience beyond bodily death and corruption? Aquinas addresses this question most poignantly in his biblical commentary in the book of Job. For those who are unfamiliar with the story, Job was a just man who was always careful to avoid doing evil. He was very wealthy and had a large family. In the story, Satan appears before God and claims that Job has only lived an upright life because he has been blessed with so much and has faced so little adversity. Satan thinks that if Job were to experience some real suffering, he would no longer be so faithful to God. God permits Satan to test Job's virtue. In the course of the story, Job's livestock, servants, and children are all killed in quick succession. 
and then Job himself is afflicted with a painful illness. Job's friends hold the view that all evil is punishment for sin. They tell Job that he must have done something really terrible to have deserved all the suffering which he has received. Throughout the story, though, Job maintains his innocence, and he is eventually vindicated. Aquinas' commentary on this book of the Bible provides an opportunity for him to reflect on the question of what the reasons or causes are for why innocent people suffer. Aquinas writes in his commentary on Job, and this is text one towards the middle of the page of the first side of your handout. He writes, quote, one thing which seems most severe is that the innocent experience many adversities in this life besides the death which is common to all. It seems reasonable that the innocent who are not guilty of their own sins should not be inflicted with any other punishment besides the death which is due to original sin, end quote. From various passages from throughout Aquinas' commentary on Job and some from other works, we can piece together Aquinas' response to this question of why God allows innocent people to suffer evils beyond bodily death and corruption. Aquinas' basic thesis is that God allows people to suffer because he can work a greater good out of their suffering. Aquinas often repeats the following quote from Augustine, and this is text two on your handout. Quote, Almighty God would in no wise permit evil to exist in his works unless he were so almighty and so good as to produce good even from evil, end quote. The greater good that God works from human suffering is not for the universe in the whole or for some higher creature in the universe. Rather, it's a greater good for human beings themselves. In order to understand what sort of greater goods Aquinas has in mind, it's important to remember how Aquinas sees the goal of human life. In our modern society, we tend to think that the goal of human living is getting those things that'll bring us pleasure and honor in this world. Delicious food, good entertainment, a prestigious job, a nice house, perhaps a good-looking significant other. This is how we conceive of the good life. Now, Aquinas doesn't deny that these things are in fact good. But in his view, these goods are neither necessary nor sufficient for achieving the two true purpose for why we exist. Even with those worldly goods, our hearts will always desire something more. Aquinas thinks that the true satisfaction of our desires, that is our true happiness, lies in achieving union with God in the next life. In order to reach this goal, we must be transformed into the sort of people who will freely love and enjoy God. According to Aquinas, God at times permits suffering and trials to happen to a person because he knows that through these trials, a person will grow in the virtues that enable them to be more fully united to God in the next life. Aquinas writes, and this is text three on the handout, quote, Now it happens that God sometimes permits trials or even some spiritual defects to happen to some to obtain their salvation, as Romans says. All things work together for the good of those who love God, end quote. In this way, God comes to man to, a, oh, sorry, that wasn't the, that was the end of the quote of Romans. And then Aquinas goes on and says, in this way, God comes to man to obtain his salvation. And yet man does not see him because he cannot perceive his kindness, end quote. Notice the last line of this quote. Aquinas points out that oftentimes, we cannot see the good that's happening to us through our trials. We pray to God to take away the suffering we experience. God, however, permits the suffering to continue since he sees it is working for our good. The goal of God's providence is not to preserve us from earthly troubles and suffering. Rather, God's goal is to get us to heaven. Aquinas writes the following about the way in which God responds to the prayers of those who suffer. And this is text four. Quote, for sometimes God does not hear someone's prayer according to what he wishes, but according to what actually succeeds. Just like a doctor does not hear the, heal the plea of the sick man who asks to take the bitter medicine away, if the doctor does not remove the remedy he knows to be health-inducing, he nevertheless hears the actual advantage of the plea of the patient because he induces health, which the sick person greatly desires. God does not take away trials from a man set down in the midst of trial, although he prays for mercy, because he knows the trials are useful to final salvation. 
Thus, although God truly heeds him, nevertheless, the man who sat down in the midst of miseries does not believe that he's heard. For if an afflicted man should understand the reason why God afflicts him, and that the afflictions are useful to his salvation, he clearly would believe that his prayer had been heard. But because he does not understand this, he does not believe that his prayer has been heard. End quote. Again, in this passage, Aquinas emphasizes that God permits humans to suffer since the suffering is useful for their salvation. God is not in the business of securing worldly pleasures and delights for us. What he's after in his providence is securing each person's final salvation. Both of the passages we just heard from Aquinas suggest that we ourselves might not even be able to tell when suffering is working for our ultimate good. Aquinas doesn't think that human beings can, in many cases, know the particular goods that come out of the particular evils which God permits. Yet he thinks that at a very general level, we can kind of grasp how certain types of goods can emerge from experiencing certain types of evil. Here are some examples Aquinas gives. Through experiencing our own weakness, we can grow in humility. Through experiencing persecution, we can grow in patience. Through being opposed, we can grow in wisdom. Through being treated with animosity, we can grow in benevolence. Aquinas' point is that by being put into situations where we are tested and tried, we develop the inward dispositions to flourish as a human being. I want to briefly mention a modern-day example of someone who personally believes that she has received great goods through her suffering. Joni Erickson Tata is the founder and CEO of an organization called Joni and Friends, which provides support to those living with disabilities. When Joni was 17, she suffered a diving accident that left her permanently paralyzed and without the use of her hands. She wrote the following in her book, When God Weeps, quote, before my paralysis, my hands reached for a lot of the wrong things and my feet took me into some bad places. After my paralysis, tempting choices were scaled down considerably. My diving accident was the beginning of a long, arduous process of becoming like Christ, end quote. She goes on to write, quote, hardships have forced me to make decisions about God. Suffering has done a job on my character. I'm not so sloppy about relationships. I stick to promises. I'm more patient. People matter more, end quote. No one likes to suffer. There are others like Joni as well who have similar stories of being transformed by their suffering into being better friends, siblings, neighbors, and spouses. You may wonder why is it that suffering should have this unique power to transform us into better versions of ourselves. In his book, God in the World, Pope Benedict XVI describes suffering as, quote, the inner side of love, end quote. He writes, Quote, anyone who really wanted to get rid of suffering would have to get rid of love before anything else, because there can be no love without suffering, because love always demands an element of self-sacrifice, because given temperamental differences in the drama of situations, love will always bring with it renunciation and pain, end quote. In learning how to inwardly embrace suffering, we become more capable of setting aside ourselves for others. So in Pope Benedict's words, quote, it's so important to learn how to suffer, end quote. To learn how to suffer is to learn how to love. Sometimes when one person suffers and bears it well, others receive great goods through witnessing it. Aquinas believes that scripture reveals that Job himself was permitted to suffer so that he could model for others, including us still today, how to bear suffering with patience. The present-day life of Immaculate Illibagiza provides a good example of how one person's heroic response to suffering can inspire others to greater virtue. Immaculate was a college student in Rwanda when a genocide broke out against her people. For a period of several months, she hid in a 12-square-foot bathroom with seven other women. When she emerged from the bathroom weighing just 65 pounds, she learned that nearly her entire family had been massacred. Eventually, she came face to face with the man who killed her mother and one of her brothers. Immaculate did what many of us today would consider unthinkable. She visited her family's killer in prison to offer forgiveness. Today, Immaculate speaks around the world about her experiences. Once after a talk she gave in Atlanta, she was approached by an old woman. The woman's parents were killed in the Holocaust when she was a baby. This is what she said to Immaculate. 
Quote, hearing your story about what you lived through and were able to forgive has inspired me. I've been trying my whole life to forgive the people who killed my parents, and now I think I can do it. I can let go of my anger and be happy, end quote. This story illustrates Aquinas' thought about how suffering which is permitted to one person can bring a great good to others. Through the suffering permitted to Emmaculate, others were given a model of heroic moral virtue. One might wonder, though, is it really fair for God to allow one person to suffer the loss of health or even family members like Immaculate, even if this loss will lead to a greater good? And Aquinas' view are temporal. So, so the, the question is, you know, is this really fair that God would allow these bad things to happen just for greater goods, especially when the greater goods go to someone else and not even ourselves? So what Aquinas says to that is this. He believes that our temporal blessings are gratuitous gifts from God. They're not owed to us. It is generous for God to give us these gifts, and there's no requirement that he let us keep them for the entirety of our lives. Aquinas writes, and this is text five on the back side of the handout. Man does not have a just complaint with God if he should be despoiled of his temporal goods, because he who gave freely could bestow them either till the end of his life or just temporarily. So when he takes temporal goods away from man before the end of life, man cannot complain, end quote. Aquinas thinks there's nothing wrong with being sad if you lose one of the goods God has given you. It's in our nature to be delighted by goods that we receive and saddened by their loss, especially the loss of family and friends. There's nothing wrong with being sad about that. Aquinas notes that even Christ, according to scripture, felt sadness. The point Aquinas is trying to make has to do with the intellectual level. We have to understand that God hasn't done an injustice to us by permitting a temporal good to be, for being taken from us. Aquinas notes that although God may permit us to lose certain goods, he always gives us what's necessary for reaching our final good of salvation. He writes, quote, from the day of his birth, you help him by your providence with the things necessary for his life and glorification, whether they are corporeal or spiritual, end quote. As Aquinas sees it, God would not want to spare the best people from the hardest suffering. In God's providence, the most difficult tasks are given to good people who are able to carry them out well, and they are in turn rewarded more in the end. Aquinas writes the following in text six, quote, for it is clear that the general of the army does not spare the vigorous soldiers from the dangers or toils, but the whole nature of warfare demands at times that he exposes them to both very great dangers and tasks. After the victory has been won, the general honors those men more who proved more vigorous. So divine providence does not dispose things so that the good people are more freed from adversities and labors of the president present life, but rather he rewards them more in the end, end quote. Just as we would not expect a coach to keep his best players in the sidelines to spare them injury, we should not expect God to spare virtuous people from hardships in this life. By suffering much, they will be transformed in such a way that they might be more perfectly united to God than those who may have been spared much suffering in this life. So those who suffer more will receive a more greater reward. There are some critical questions we can ask about Aquinas' view that God permits evil to happen to humans for the sake of their greater spiritual good. First, one might wonder whether we should remain passive in the face of evil that others suffer. Should you help your neighbor when they're suffering because God might be using that suffering to work for her salvation? In response to such a question, we need to remember that God has commanded us to alleviate the suffering of our neighbors. Although evil can work for good, evil is still, of itself, not good for a human being. Our aid to our neighbor might be the very means God wants to use to prevent an evil that he knows will not work for our neighbor's good. If God wants to permit an evil that we try to stop, our efforts just won't be successful. We are unable to know the complicated relationships that obtain between events in this world and the spiritual state of human souls. Thus, we need to, above all, follow God's commandments to aid our neighbors in need and let God sort out how the events in this world, including suffering, work for human salvation. 
Another question one might ask about Aquinas' claim that God permits suffering for the sake of a greater good is whether it's empirically plausible. We see too many examples in the world of people who don't seem to grow stronger from their suffering. Rather, they're broken down by the evil they experience and they turn their backs on God. So far as I know, Aquinas does not directly address this question, but he does claim that if a person was truly just, God would never permit anything to happen to them which would impede their final salvation. He writes, quote, God, however, extends his providence over the just in a certain more excellent way than over the wicked, inasmuch as he prevents anything happening which would impede their final salvation. For to them who love God, all things work unto good, end quote. So it seems that there are two possibilities for the case of those who appear to turn away from God in the face of suffering. First, it may have been the case that they were not turned toward God in the first place. Thus, their suffering did not, in fact, turn them away from God. The second possibility is that despite appearances, their suffering did somehow draw them closer to God in their final salvation. As outsiders, and even with regard to our own selves, we, can't position, we aren't in a position to judge another person's soul, and oftentimes we don't understand our own souls very well. It's very hard to truly know, uh, and Aquinas thinks we probably can't ever know how suffering is working in a person's soul. So lastly, one can ask why God permits humans to sin. If the goal of God's providential care over human beings is to get them to heaven, why doesn't God order the world in such a way that no one has an opportunity to sin? If God knows, for example, that I will choose to overeat if presented with a whole chocolate cake, why doesn't God order the world in such a way that I'm never alone with a chocolate cake? Aquinas believed that even the sins which are permitted uh, in, in his world work for the good of the just. He recognizes that people gain, gain greater love and humility through the experience of sin and repentance. We also can learn a great deal which helps in the future through the experience of moral failure. So even our sins can be the occasion that leads to a greater spiritual good. So there's a lot more I could say and a lot more questions I'm sure you have. So I'm just going to briefly conclude now and um, then open it up for your questions. So let me just summarize and make one final point. So in this talk, I've discussed, discussed some of the key points about Aquinas' thinking about God and evil. And Aquinas' view evil is a lack of good which should be present. It's not some positive reality that God creates and sustains. It's something that's missing or lacking. God created a world of good creatures that actively interact with one another, and at times through their actions, they diminish each other's goodness. God does not step in and prevent his creatures from acting to cause one another harm because he knows that he can work a greater good out of their suffering. In the case of us human beings, that good is the ultimate good of salvation. I'd like to conclude with one final point from Aquinas, which is very, very important. Though Aquinas thought that God does not intervene to stop evil from occurring, he nevertheless did not think that God was a passive bystander to his creature's suffering. In Aquinas' view, God draws even nearer to those who suffer to provide them with the inner consolation they need to face their sufferings. He writes in text 7, quote, People need to be supported in the face of evils which occur, and that is to receive comfort. Because unless a man had something in which his heart could rest, he would not stand firm when evils come upon him. Therefore, a person comforts another by affording him something refreshing in which he can rest in evil times. And although a man might be comforted by something and find rest and be supported in it, in the case of some evils, it is God alone who comforts us in all evils. Hence, Paul says, God is the God of all comfort, end quote. For good reasons, Aquinas' God does not intervene in creation to keep his creatures free from all suffering. Yet God never abandons his suffering creatures. God himself draws even nearer to the hearts of those who are struggling to comfort them in every affliction, and he wills for us to do the same. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Dr. Frost. That was a very challenging and rich and interesting talk. 
We're going to now do Q&A, so if you have a question for Dr. Frost, please come to the microphone. Uh, we'll take them one at a time until around 8.20. We might have to call an audible, um, but there may be a line at that moment, and you may not get to ask your question, but there will be, ha there will be an end. Uh, but I'm going to sit down and let you take your question. I, I have a question for you from an opposite perspective. I come myself from a Christian perspective, so I understand that evil is a problem to my perspective, but from a naturalistic perspective, have you ever come across a good working definition of what is good and what is evil? Isn't the existence of good, the existence of evil, a problem for the naturalistic view? I mean, just that would be just what is, is. And why should the bacteria, shouldn't they want to live too? And I die, so be it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so you're I, asking, like, like for for a naturalist, um, they wouldn't have the right frame of reference for or, even talking about something as being evil. I mean, one person's good could be another person's evil. So, what is yeah. is there a good is there a working definition that a naturalistic person would have of yeah. good and evil? I mean, coming my my own backgrounds like in the in the history of philosophy, and so I mean, the ancient philosophers, you know, in some respects, you could think of them as being naturalists. And so they would talk about you know good and evil in reference to the function of something. So uh, uh, I mean you could say so this might be presupposing more than a contemporary naturalist would. But say you know you have a sewing machine, the function of it is to sew. So you say well it, anything that prevents it from performing its function is an evil for it. And then uh, uh, you know for us you could say well our function is to think and to sense and to interact with the world. Anything that stops that would be you know, bad or an evil for us. But, but I don't think, know if you could really talk about evil in a moral sense, though. You know, maybe you could talk about evil in nature with reference to the functions of things. But yeah, I, I don't know how you'd be able to talk about moral evil, maybe, unless you just said anything that caused pain and suffering. But, you know, then you'd have that question, well, why is pain and suffering bad? So does that, I don't know if that yeah, helps. Yeah, that, that helps, but I'm just, it's still, you know, it's good for the bacteria for it to kill me. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Aquinas would agree with that, that, you know, it is good for the bacteria. It's following its good for it to kill us, and it's bad for us right. as well. So, why should, yeah, so what is 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 what I would come to, right? If I was a naturalistic person. Um, yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I, I don't think. I don't know how else I would answer <laughs> that question. So, I guess. I, I guess yeah, so fundamentally it seems that the notion of good and evil is a problem for the naturalist as well as the problem of evil being a problem for me. It's the That's definition all. that they have a problem with. Yeah. Because where's the standard? Right. Yeah. So ne next question. Thank you, Dr. Frost. Um, uh, I wanted to ask more from the perspective of a moral evil. Um, we know that God, according to Aquinas, is the first cause um, of all of all changes in the in the world. So that would seem to include human actions. Yeah. Um, when a human uh, perpetrates an evil action, um, say something that we can all agree is evil, like the Holocaust or something. Sure. Yeah. Um, how is God not causing that evil if He is the first cause? Yeah, okay, so this is a wonderful question, you know, something that medieval philosophers like Aquinas grappled with extensively, and there's a lot of good contemporary literature on this question, so you really hit on something important. Um, so Aquinas, and it's pretty standard in the Christian tradition, uh, you know, in the history, uh, that, uh, you know, God is the first cause of all realities, that's just part of being a creator, and our actions are things that exist. And so is God causing evil when, you know, Hitler perpetrates a genocide is God the cause of those actions as well. And so what Aquinas emphasizes is that human actions have two causes, and that's going to hold of a lot of natural causes as well, so like cell division. The cells mm -hmm. and God are causing it together. And so in the case of moral evil, what Aquinas says is that um, you know, some actions that are jointly caused can have a defect introduced into them by only one cause. So suppose you and I are both carrying a table mm -hmm. and you're doing a perfect job and I trip and go down. The table's mm -hmm. gonna fall all because of my failure even though you were acting perfectly. And that's how Aquinas tries to handle moral action as well, that 
you know, we don't cause this, we ought to, even though God is causing perfectly, and so we're responsible for that defect of sin. Okay, thank Very you. Good question. Hi. <clears throat> this is more from, not really like a philosophical standpoint, but more of like a day-to-day -day application of it. Yeah. So, if you like have a, someone close to you who's like struggling with something really hard in their life, how can you like, like approach a situation and tell them that this struggling is like going to be good for them in the end when you know that that's probably going to be met with like anger or, or confusion, if that makes sense? Yeah, so this is a very good question. Um, and I mean, what your question really touches on, and you are even the way you posed it, you, I can tell you see this, is that you know, there's a, a difference between kind of thinking about problems intellectually and trying to reconcile the existence of God with suffering, and then there's kind of like the, the level of friendships in our interactions with people. And sometimes it isn't helpful in a relationship to, you know, maybe give all, every, all of your kind of intellectual conclusions you've come to if you see that they're not gonna be helpful for that person. I mean, sometimes when someone is really going through something really hard, the best thing we can do is, you know, to listen, to be there for them, to support them, and hopefully through that experience of love and friendship, you know, you, that, that person will, you know, later be in maybe a better place where they can uh, uh, maybe look back on that suffering and see the blessings that came to them. And it may very well be the friendship that's, that's part of those blessings. So it might not always be a good idea to share that, you know, with someone who's going through something hard, especially if you can tell it's not going to be met with, uh, you know, um, a, a kind of a, a, it's not going to be helpful or useful mm -hmm. to them. Often it's in retrospect, looking back at things that we can see how they're helpful to us. All right, thank you. Question. Uh, thank you so much for the, the talk. That was pretty amazing. Um, I do have a question um, from the very first part of it in regards to the first humans. Uh, so where you know, the first humans had special gifts uh, that preserved them from bodily corruption and death. Yeah. Um, so firstly, is that a Thomas Aquinas claim? I mean, obviously, which would have been way before evolution, just because that, that statement to me pretty heavily um, doesn't go along with, you know, the evolution theory. So um, yeah. what can you point to at this point to say that there's the evidence that the first humans had some special gift to keep them from corruption and death. Yeah, so you're touching on a really big issue. Um, yeah. You know, how do we reconcile Christian theology regarding, um, you know, the, 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 the original sin to be, I mean, it's a problem not just for the, the original state of grace, but also just the idea of original sin, that there were, you know, first parents of the race that, um, uh, you know, made a poor choice and that was transmitted to other people. And so I actually have some colleagues who work a little bit on, the, on these topics. So. Um, you know, one person I'd recommend who writes well for students is a, a biologist, actually, MIT trained. His name's Nicanor Ostriaco. He's part of this Thomistic Institute. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different ways this could go. So, I mean, I, I think the best evolutionary theories say that there's going to be, you know, not just two people starting out. There's going to be whole groups of people. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've heard some people talk about, you know, maybe there were in this whole group, maybe two people who were like, a special leadership role in the group and somehow could make collective decisions for the groups. That could be maybe one way yeah. of understanding how even with a number of people, it could be that there were two human parents. But then the, yeah, the state of original justice. Um, I mean, what we'd have to look at, <coughs> you know, what do we have record-wise in science available from that time period and how extensive is it? You know, maybe it was in a place we haven't found. And yeah. you have to think about, you know, what kind of evidence could be even left behind of, of that. You know, well, from, from my understanding, it's pretty widely accepted that, you know, the first humans, if you want to call them that, which is kind of hard to point to when and what they were, but yeah. had far less of a lifespan than we did and probably more suffering due to, you know, fear yeah. and lack of knowledge of what was happening around them in the world. So that's just, yeah. I don't know, so that's a pretty original, tough claim. Original sin would have happened pretty soon in their lifetime. So, you know, they yeah. didn't ever know, I mean, it, we're talking like a pretty short period in like individual people's existence that they yeah. were in that state of original justice. So there never was someone who lived, according to Christian theology, like a full life, you know, with that. No. That's an interesting question. I'd refer you to, you know, some of the other work on that. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Hi, thank you for coming out. Um, I'm a relatively new Christian, and before I became a Christian, I always believed in evolution, but now something that I'm starting to con consider more are the theological implications of that. And so um, just kind of a, a little bit similar to what his question was, um, you said that a lion eating a lamb was evil. Are you saying that um, that it's evil from an objective moral perspective or that it's just evil from the perspective of the lamb? Yeah, it's just something, a suffering and uh, a sort of a lack of good that it undergoes, but not from a moral perspective. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a bad that thing that happens to it. So, and then my follow-up question for that was, um, does that relationship between the lion and the lamb precede original sin? Um, and so there's already death in the world before the fall, and kind of what is your scriptural basis for that? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, because um, like, you know, there, there is stuff in scripture about, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the new world, you know, the lion will lay down with mm. the lamb and yeah. things like that. And I mean, that's like, I was focusing here on like what Aquinas says about that, and Aquinas' views, and I'm pretty sure that he does believe that um, even prior to original sin, you have natural evil in the in the world like death of non-human animals that it's only human mm -hmm. uh death that is coming from original sin i mean that's his view uh i mean i don't know absolutely speaking like what we want our views to be on that uh but that that's what he thinks for that yeah do you have or is there like a specific verse that you can point to that um kind of clarifies that death um did previously exist as a thing and humans were just immune from it rather than um, that didn't exist and it was brought into the world by sin? Yeah, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't okay. think of like a specific okay. scripture to back All right. that up. Thank you. Thank you, good question. Hello, <clears throat> thank you for coming. My, um, I'm actually a philosophy student here and the problem of evil is like my favorite thing to think and talk about, so oh, I really enjoyed your talk. Yeah. Coming. Um, my question, I think, kind of takes a different track. It's, I think, um, when you kept talking about why God would permit human beings to sin, my mind kept going to my favorite philosopher, who's Alvin Plantinga, um, and his views on, like, lapsarianism yeah. and God's, like, ultimate and proximate aims and decree of order. And so I was wondering how you would think Aquinas would align with, like, a lapsarian thought, and if he thought that God allowing human beings to sin would be one of those like necessary evils um, just to account for some best possible world, like if God has to let us sin for that to be the best world. Yeah, okay, so are you thinking about, because I know like part of Plantinga's views are that, um, well, you know, Plantinga says it's possible that, you know, it's just every human would sin and every, you know, there, you can't, that's possible that just it's how we use free will, that, you know, God can't make a world without us sinning. And, right. Um, and so that's, so Aquinas, I don't, so Aquinas doesn't hold the same view as Plantinga that God can kind of see even prior to creating like what every human would do. So he doesn't think God knows that until he makes things. Oh. Um, and then we just use our free will and God is like eternal and like sees it all, but he doesn't have like the middle knowledge that Plantinga attributes to God. Um, but then part of your question too, wasn't it, does, is our world the best possible world by including sin? So Aquinas actually thinks there is no best possible world okay. because um, God's goodness is infinite and the world's goodness is measured by like how much does it reflect God's goodness and since God's goodness is infinite, it can always be surpassed. Uh, uh, it's every world is just always surpassable. Um, okay. God could have all, I mean, you could make the best possible world and then make one more lion and then it's gonna be better or make one more crab and then you can yeah, sure. just go on forever. So there's okay. a couple interesting papers. Uh, if you just Google uh, why there's no best possible world, people have talked about this a little in Aquinas. Okay, thank you. Nice to meet you. Hi, Dr. Frost, thank you for being here. Uh, so really quick question, I actually have two thoughts. This is the first one. Uh, the first bullet point on part two, human suffering is not required for the good of the universe as a whole. Uh, does Thomas give any intellectual support for this? Or, uh, I mean, in my own thoughts, I can think that we're we're pretty much at the top of every food chain. Um, so yet there's not really any, any uh, creature that depends on us, uh, except in the fact that we can cultivate creation uh, so that we are caretakers of it, not so much uh, involved in it. Uh, other evidence I would think would be just our intellect and our ability to create art and reason about, the, about creation. Uh, is there any other evidence that Thomas gives or that you've um, given thought to? Yeah, I, th I think it's, like what he focused on is mainly that first bullet, that first point you mentioned that 
you know, we're not at the top, we're the top of the food chain. We're not, we don't need to die for something else's food. Uh, so, so I think that's mainly what he has in mind. Like all these other creatures, they exist for the sake of other creatures and for us to complement, um, you know, uh, 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 contemplate them and use them and cultivate them as you were pointing out. But you know, he thinks there are even higher things than humans, like angels, for example. But he doesn't think we exist for the sake of angels. We exist for our own sake, for the purpose of being united with God. So he might also focus on the fact that our purpose lies wholly outside of this world, to being in union with God. Other creatures, their purpose is going to be kind of serving something within this world. Uh, it's you know as food for it, or you know as something else, like the way other things help us to do work and help us to learn. Okay. Thank you. And uh, the second thought, this is more just like fodder for thought and discussion, sure. uh, that uh, the Christian worldview offers much hope in regard to suffering, whereas uh, an atheistic worldview uh, who's, uh, like, I don't know, if our ultimate uh, destination is annihilation, uh, there's not much hope in that, and that causes much uh, self-induced anxiety and suffering. Um, so I don't know, just yeah. some fodder for thought. I, th I think that's actually a, a great point. I mean, like, suffering has purpose for us. I mean, we believe that this world isn't the end horizon, and we, there's something outside of this world that it can be offered to. Um, like a, a Catholic practice is to offer up your suffering for, you know, other people. And uh, my kids were just sick, and I told them, oh, you can offer it up for someone. And it's like you can take that, like, that Jesus, through his death on the cross, he transformed all suffering and gave us this power to give our suffering a point. Um, you know, like a kid having an earache is no purpose, no point, and that it's God and his, you know, mercy gives even us the ability to take any suffering we experience and kind of apply it to, you know, a point, uh, to say, you know, God, through your power, take my suffering that I offer up and, you know, make things better for someone else, and that, you know, would only be possible with God, that, that our suffering that's so pointless, not, not connected to anything, could have a point, so that's a very good insight you have. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's always a fun Catholic joke. It's like, oh, you're hurting? Oh, just offer it up. <laughs> thank you. Uh, kind of on a similar note, in terms of um, suffering coming to a point and Christ giving us a great place for that point to rest just in his death and his resurrection, I was thinking about that question in terms of the Old Testament specifically um, and like divinely mandated destruction and seemingly um, well, I struggle with finding a point to when God says to, to Moses and to Joshua, go into Canaan and go take over um, this land and go, you know, and there's, and there's punishment for a lack of de uh, destruction. He says devote everything to destruction and don't leave anything. And when there's something left, you know, God punishes them for it. So I was wondering how we reconcile that divinely mandated destruction with the concept of a good God who doesn't lack anything. Yeah. So, yeah, the, I mean, there are a lot of hard stories, especially in the Old Testament, like how do we make sense of those stories in light of God's nature um, that we believe is good and loving. And so, I mean, I think what's really important for any of those stories is to look at what the scripture scholars say. Like I've just been learning a lot in the last like few years, just, uh, you know, all these stories I thought they knew what they were about or what they said. And, when you read of people who really understand the context and what was going on for the people and their nation, you know, who were in those situations, sometimes there really are points to that. Um, I mean, yeah, I've always had a hard time with why would God say to kill people or to destroy things. And, um, you know, the scripture scholars have done a lot of work to show, you know, what could have been the purpose of that and how it ultimately could have been good for that nation to you know, go in there and make a clean start. Um, so, sorry, I'm not really answering your question. It's I'm okay. just pointing you to other resources. It's okay. Do, do you have any specific resources that you could point to that you've been reading recently? Um, no, I'm, I can't think of off the top of my head any, you know, scripture scholar. Scott Hahn is a very good okay. you know, scripture scholar. Um, but, yeah, I can't, I can't think of others right now. Okay. But, yeah, like, look, talk to people you trust uh, and ask them, you know, who do they read, who do they recommend for scripture scholars. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have a recommendation? Yeah. There's a book uh, by an author named Trent Horn. It's called Hard Sayings. Okay. He answers uh, most of your Bible difficulties. There's another book by Paul Copan. Yes. Hi. These will be our last two questions. Sweet. Um, I just wanted to know if um, 
What does um, Thomas Aquinas have to say about the idea of like total depravity? That before knowing Jesus and knowing the truth of salvation, that there was no real good act committed by a person. If what you say is that like um, evil is the absence of good, why is there this like kind of thought that there's bad that has existed before Jesus? I don't think he would agree with that idea of total depravity. Um, you know, Aquinas draws very heavily on ancient philosophers who you know, did not have divine revelation, um, certainly didn't know of Jesus. He also draws heavily on Jewish and Muslim figures from his own time period, their ideas. So he thinks figures who even have not accepted Christ or don't know, you know the one God, uh, uh, God the Father, he thinks that they still can arrive at certain truths about the natural world and about human beings. He even thinks they can uh, have moral virtues um, uh, and, you know, and live well on a natural level. So someone who doesn't know Christ, Aquinas would say, they could have a well-ordered life. They could like get to class on time and be good students and you know, support their friends and be good to their parents. So I, I think he would disagree with that. He always talks about how grace perfects nature. So he thinks you know, we can have, on a natural level, good habits. And then later, when we come to know Christ, it can just even be taken to a higher level with grace. And what arguments would he use to combat that like idea? Um, because yeah. it's a very like Catholic point of view that um, all people inherently have a grace and the capability to be saved. And even like you said, those who live like a well-ordered and moral life have that capability to be saved. I mean, there might be, there might be more arguments, but I think just one basic one is that you know everything has God as its origin and source. So even that person who's the unbeliever. They are created and made by God in his image and likeness and sustained in being with God, by God. So they're you know, produced uh, you know, by this principle of goodness. So you know, they resemble God in having some natural goodness in them. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Great Thank question. you. So there is a scripture that changed my life many years ago, and it's in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 12. And paraphrased, it basically says, for we are engaged in a battle of the spirit and not of the flesh. And that brought to my mind that there is actually good and evil battling for our souls, for the, for the existence of eternity and everything that we are. So while I can understand how there are evils that are um, the quest for perfection in someone who's missing something, yeah. Does Aquinas talk about people who actually are very directly evil, who plan evil, who are jealous and retaliatory and uh, do evil things, and is that part of this battle in the universe? Um, I mean, so Aquinas would say even those people who we would think of as like, you know, just being so far beyond, like seeking, yeah. you know, stealing the candy marks, they want the good taste, you know, people who plan genocides or who... Um, you know, even just kind of maliciously plan to do things to shame their neighbors, like mm -hmm. at an ordinary level. Um, I mean, he would say even if we really got to the root of their psyche, like the, it's a s desire for good. I mean, it's a desire for good, a desire to make, um, you know, uh, 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 a desire, you know, the neighbor maybe, they may have a desire to uh, be honored by other people, to fit in, to uh, have some entertainment maybe, like that deep down, the only reason we do anything is because we think it'll bring good to us. And some of us just do it in a really disordered, messed up kind of way. And so like, you know, the, I think like with the good and evil battling our, for our soul, like on a spiritual way, Aquinas, you know, thought there were demons and like Satan. You say even them, you know, what, what, what did Satan want? He wanted power, he wanted to be, you know, higher than God, that it was like a quest for something good just carried out in a very poor way. So he would extend it even to those hard cases. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Our final question. <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much for coming all the way down here to Texas. I very much enjoyed your uh, speech given today. And uh, you've talked a lot about good and uh, defined evil as being the absence of something good. And I was curious what your definition of good would be. Yeah, that's a great question to think about it. <laughs> so. Um, Yes, I was looking so much at evil. Uh, so, um, I mean, if Aquinas, when he talks about good, he says 
good is what things what is desirable. He defines it in terms of desirability. It's that which we seek. Um, and you would say, like, kind of ontologically, if we want to understand it more, it's just every it's just kind of the everything's reflection of God, kind of a participation in God's being. And so the, the goodness that things have would be kind of like coming from God as their maker uh, and a reflection of God's goodness. And good, sort of if we want to define it, it's kind of that aspect of things that we seek or desire. Um, and, and what it is in itself would be kind of an, a reflection of God. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. Let's give Dr. Frost a... Uh, thank you again for uh, coming tonight. Uh, just as a reminder, there are uh, other events going on this weekend, or sorry, this week. Um, if you would, as you leave, please take your pencil and your card, fill out the rest of your card, and there's a box on the check-in table. If you will drop your pencil in there, put the card next to it. Uh, thanks for coming tonight. We hope to see you uh, again on Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs>